All right, today is called How to Think with a Low Mind, Part 2. Subtitle, How to Think Like a Worm. How to Think Like a Worm. But I, I, you have to say it with a Scottish accent to, uh, to, to really get the full effect. How to Think Like a Worm. Like a worm. Eh? There you go. A worm. Water. Whatever he said. Awesome. Well, so we're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And this is what it says. We're going to read the whole scripture first before we talk about it. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Wonderful. I don't even need to say anything that is so glorious and wonderful what Jesus has done for us. But I'm going to, because there's a lot to say. Well, we have been studying the book of Philippians, and it's, kind of, it's called How to Think, our, our entire kind of sermon series, the whole look at Philippians. It's kind of like thinking lessons. And last week, we started to look at humility, which was how to think with a low mind or how to, how to correctly operate your brain. And that is with humility, uh, how to operate our mind the right way by emptying ourselves of selfish thoughts and selfish desires. This is what we learned last week. We learned that our minds are full of sin, but sin is not glorious. Sin is not weighty. We learned the difference between steak and cotton candy. Steak has weight, substance, and that is the definition of glory. Cotton candy is non-glorious or selfish thoughts Conceited thoughts are non-glorious. And so Paul wants our lives and our minds to be filled with glory. And the Lord wants to fill our minds with steak, we'll call it. So being vegetarian is a sin. You can just take that to the bank. I, of course, am joking. I'm sure there's some... Never mind. If you're vegetarian, I do not mean to offend you. Okay. We saw that glory was like weight, it's substance, and value. Okay. And we learned that we are like a gas gauge. When we're full of ourselves, when our gas gauge is full, we can't be filled with anything else. But when we empty ourselves, when we choose to empty ourselves, we are like empty containers or vessels ready to be filled by the Spirit of God and God's very presence. And so we spent all last week kind of thinking about ourselves and how we apply this. And this week, we turn our attention back to Jesus. Paul says in verse 5, So let this mind, the whole thing we just explained of how to live in humility and empty yourself of selfish thoughts, he says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Paul takes 
his instruction on how to operate the mind, and he's now going to show us an example of how to do this. And this is a great way to learn. You know, explain it to me, and then show it to me. That's a great way uh, teachers use that all the time. It's not like those instructions that Ikea gives. All they give is visual instructions, right? They have no words at all. It's like bizarro world trying to read their instructions. It does not always go well for me. But what's really amazing is that the act of looking at this illustration that we're going to see today, Jesus, the act of looking at his illustration of how to be humble is what the instructions were telling you to do in the first place. Look at the illustration. Keep your eyes on him, focused on him. Because looking at this illustration will cause you to adore him. It will, or you'll hate him, one or the other. You're either going to love Jesus for what he does and who he is, or you're going to have a part of you that just hates him. We'll see that at the end, how you can tell the difference. Looking at Jesus will change your heart. It will affect your heart. It's like looking at the sun and you are an ice cream cone. It will melt you. His love is too bright and shiny and powerful to handle. He will break you down. But not through rules and not through harshness. He breaks us down with the intensity of his love. That's amazing. Beholding Jesus should be our only aim, our only needful thing that we need to do. Because when you look at him, you'll eventually call out to him. And that's an awesome thing. I'm going to read you a Spurgeon quote. Your weekly Spurgeon quote time has arrived. We should have a little song, a ditty, for when the Spurgeon quote comes up. Spurgeon quote, Spurgeon quote. I don't know. That would be funny. (laughs) All right. He says, The lower he stoops to save us, the higher we ought to lift him in our adoring reverence. Blessed be his name. He stoops and stoops and stoops, and when he reaches our level, he becomes man. He still stoops and stoops and stoops lower and deeper yet. Our minds can be tossed around by so many things. I understand things happen in your world that you need to focus your attention on. You, you get a flat tire, you can't just say, Lord, give me a new tire. You've got to get out of your, off your butt, change your tire. I understand. Something happens in your world, you've got to take care of it. But when your mind has kind of stopped shifting back and forth, we need to let it return to the place that we choose to dwell. And that place is Christ. That is what it means to abide in Christ. To remain there. That, that's the place we choose to dwell. So, we're going to get this mind, he says. Now, verse 6. Who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. 
So our illustration of how to have humility begins teaching, Paul begins by teaching us some of the most amazing truths about Jesus that we'll learn anywhere in the entire Bible. This is an incredible section of scripture. We learn more about Jesus from these couple verses than, than a lot of, the, of uh, scripture combined. It's an amazing portion. And it says here, he was, he was in the form of God. This is where Jesus started out from. He is God. He is God. The, it says later that he was in his being, uh, he was equal to God. This word being is from the Greek word. We're going to nerd out a little bit. I'm going to teach you some Greek, all right? Huparchian. Uh, Everyone say huparchian. I'm teaching you Greek. How awesome is that? All right. Which means, that's the, the word being, his being. Um, it describes that which a man is in his very essence and cannot be changed. It describes the part of man which in any circumstance remains the same. I can cut off Nathan's head. This doesn't change that he is Nathan. That is his being. It will not change. No matter how much I maim him, no matter how ugly I make him, I could tattoo him, I could replace his insides with other things. I mean, I could make him a robot, but it will not change that he is Nathan. That is his name, that is who he is. I could even change his name, but it doesn't change who he is inside. That is his being, his essence, you could call it. The word form, he was in the form of God, Jesus his being doesn't change. Even though he became a man, he doesn't change from being God. He's still God in the very essence of who he is. Then it says, the form, though, he was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This is the Greek word morphe. Everyone say morphe. That is the essence which never alters. Now, Paul could have used the word schema, which is an outward change, something that outward changes. So if I cut off Kurt's face and I put it on Nathan, that would be changing his schema, his outward appearance. And circumstances can change our outward appearance. Age changes that, right? That's one circumstance that changes us. But Jesus, he started out as God and that never changed. He was in the very form of God. Now we, we have to look at that Greek because the English says, oh, he just... He just looked like God, or he just, he was like God up in heaven. Form for us doesn't have the same intensity that the Greek word is trying to express. But in Greek, it says, no, his very essence is God. He is God. He is never going to change no matter what he does. He cannot change who he is, which is God. He started out as God. He's always been God. He'll never be less than God. We think of a son as less than a father. But in the Bible terms, when it says Jesus was the son of God, it doesn't mean he's less or that he came from God. That term, only begotten son. We know that term, right? John 3.16. God gave his, own, his only begotten son to the world that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That, that's an unfortunate translation in English. What they're trying to say, what the Greek is saying, is that he's the only possible, unique representative of God. He's the only one that shows us what God really is. Jesus shows us that. You want to know what God thinks about something? Look at Jesus. 
You want to know what God would do if someone needed something? Look at Jesus. Anything you need to know about God, Jesus is the illustration of that truth. So Jesus starts out on high in this illustration. We got to see where Jesus starts out from because God is high. Just how high is God? Please no 420 jokes. I knew someone would do it, so I just started it. Just, but in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, we need to see how God describes himself. Check this out. Isaiah 57, verse 15. This is one of my favorite verses, and I have it highlighted, underlined, starred. It says, For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. So God's description of himself is, I am the high and lofty one. And I don't even know what that means, but it's, it's way up there and it's lofty. I don't, what does that mean, God? Well, he's saying I dwell, I inhabit eternity. That means time can't, I can't even be contained by all of time, eternity. I am too big for time. His name is holy, which means his nature is perfect. Every aspect of who he is is perfect and infinite. And it says he lives, he dwells in, this high, in, this, uh, in the high and holy place, which means he's totally fine by himself. No one is even worthy to be with him, be in his presence. Yet, what does the next verse say? He says, I dwell in the high and holy place with, that word means he likes to be with certain people. He has a, a desire. Why did God make men? Does he need them? No, he does not need us. But he delights in us. He loves us. And he says here, he, delows, he dwells with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. He has this desire, this delight to be with us. And not just any of us or all of us. He, he has a specific group of people that he certainly delights in, and that is the humble. Jesus longs for relationship with the most broken, the most bruised, the most messed up, the weirdest, the weakest people in all the world. That is his people. He longs for it. But he doesn't just show us all his glory. So this is what we're describing. God is the high and lofty one. Now, have any of us ever seen that? You're just taking my word for it. You, you know that's God, but none of us have seen his glory. Because if you've seen his glory, you would be dead. Our mortal bodies actually cannot even see his glory because he is so good. In fact, it would violate our our free will. If you saw his glory, you would have to, you, would, you must confess, you are Lord, you are glorious, you are amazing, and you wouldn't even have a choice to choose something else because you would say, oh my gosh, he's so good. He is God. There is none other besides him if you would just see him. But God hides himself. He is hidden from our eyes. Why? Because he has given us free will. He says, I'm there and I'll show my glory in all kinds of ways, but 
I'm not going to force you. I'm going to give you a reasonable other choice. Uh, I, you can be an atheist if you want to be stupid. <laughs> if you want to ignore all this truth that's out there, all the ways I'm revealing my glory, you can do that. So I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to force you at this time. I'm going to let you live your life because I desire to be with the humble. Or you could say, I desire to be with the one who wants me, the one who wants to be with me. That's who I want to be with. I don't want to be with people who I forced to say, come here, get over here and marry me right now. Cavemen did not have good success rate at loving marriages. Right? Thunk. Give me meat, woman. That does not work when you are going for a loving relationship. God, he desires love. He is love. And uh, he dwells with those who are humble, who will acknowledge their need and their love for him. So because he couldn't just show us his holiness and show us his glory... God chose a different way to connect with people, and that is the word condescension. Everyone say condescension. condescension. And that's a big word that means a voluntary descent from one's rank or dignity in relating to with an inferior. So it's like the president coming and talking with me. I'm inferior to him. But if he were to take off his presidential suit and put on a pair of shorts... We could have a conversation. Well, we measure condense, condense, condescension, <laughs> condescension by how far someone has to drop in order to meet another person. For Jesus, the measure of his condescension is infinity. Infinity. Jesus is so great, so wonderful, so powerful that we are just dust before him. We're nothing. He has no need for any of us. We cannot add any profit to him or blessing. We cannot even comprehend him or understand him. As Jonathan Edwards says, he is the sovereign Lord of all. He, he rules over the whole universe and he does whatsoever he pleases. His knowledge is without bound. His wisdom is perfect and none can circumvent it. His power is infinite and none can resist him. His riches are immense and exhaustible. His majesty is infinitely awful. Verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. His power is infinite. His glory is infinite. His awesomeness cannot be measured. It is infinite. And every angel and every man are only like ants to him. You know what? Probably lower than ants. Worms. What do you call it when worms take over the world? Global worming. Why didn't the two worms get into Noah's ark in an apple? Because everyone had to get in in pairs. 
See pears, the, the fruits? Okay, just making sure you're tracking with me. <laughs> okay, so from an unimaginable height, which is where Jesus, we start from, looking at Jesus, to sinful man is an infinite distance. And when Jesus became a man, he didn't cease from being God at all. He was still God in every way. He simply added humanity to his divinity. Now, there is a doctrine I want you to be aware of and be warned of. There's a doctrine that says Jesus, um, he, he, didn't, he wasn't God in all ways. Like he ceased from being omnipresent and omniscient. He, he, he literally didn't know that he was God. He learned that. And that's a, it's a heresy you need to be warned of. He was always fully God. He just added humanity to his divinity. It's very important for us to, to land on that for a second. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus operates his mind the way that Paul taught us, but totally different than I do. I'm like a worm standing on top of a couple more layers of dust to get on top of and higher than other worms around me. I don't often like to descend more than a couple layers of dirt, but Jesus descended so far. From the heights of glory, he became like one of us worms. He came to a bunch of worms. He humbled himself to be the lowest of the worms. He, he came as a baby. He didn't even come as a man. He came as a weak, sniveling, groveling, pooping baby. He came poor, the poorest of the poor. Didn't even have a place to be born. He came in an obscure way, in an obscure town. He wasn't famous. He wasn't talented. He wasn't privileged. He had to wait like 30 years before anyone even knew who he was or what he was doing. He had to be ridiculed. He had to be rejected. He had to be made fun of. He had the worst friends. He was weak. He was tempted. And he should have been respected, but he wasn't. He should have been worshipped, but he was tortured instead. He died the most embarrassed, humiliated, despised, and rejected that of any man that has ever lived. His death is the pinnacle of human wickedness. That all the people stood and said, crucify him, is the pinnacle of the worst thing anyone has ever done. To crucify the Lord of glory, who did nothing wrong, who he only ever loved, and healed, like all those people that were there were probably healed by him. And they're still shouting, crucify him. It is the pinnacle of human wickedness, yet he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. He became a worm, the lowest of the worms, out of his love. Now, I didn't just grab that illustration out of nowhere, because you need to turn to Psalm, you need to turn to Psalm chapter 22. Psalm 22, you got to see this. This will blow your mind, it will rip down walls in your heart, it will cause selfish thoughts to dissolve like the sun 
burns away the snow in the summer, spring, whatever. Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. You have to see this. This is a messianic psalm spoken in the voice of the Messiah. So Jesus is talking. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip and shake the head saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. This is a very specific prophecy of exactly what would happen a couple thousand years later when Jesus is on the cross and everyone was looking at him and saying, well, if he is the Messiah, why doesn't he get himself down off the cross? He trusted in God. Let him deliver him. They actually said these exact words. And Jesus says, this is all part of it. I knew this was going to happen. I know that men were going to reject me because I am making myself a worm. A worm. (laughs) A worm. Well, why would Jesus do that? What does this mean? The language of this verse is a miracle. Spurgeon quote number two. Ready? Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon quote. Everybody get ready for Spurgeon quote. All right. How could the Lord of glory be brought to such abasement as to be not only lower than the angels, but even lower than men. What a contrast between I am, which is the name of God, and what we see here, I am a worm. How could God do this? Now we're going to really blow your minds. God's word is unbelievable. Jesus' love is out of control. It's so amazing. And we see it in this word worm, okay? The Hebrew word for worm is tola. Everyone say tola. Tola. All right, now with a Hebrew accent, tola. All right, good. Well done. It's translated two ways. It It has two meanings in the Bible. One is scarlet, and the other is worm. Why would the same word be used for both scarlet and worm? Because in the Bible days, all throughout history, whenever people needed scarlet cloth, they would grind a certain worm called the tola worm into a pasty, blood-red substance, and it would be used as a dye. So everywhere you see red cloth, they had to go out, find these worms, grind them up, and that's where they get red dye from. Henry Morris explains what we're seeing here better than I could, so I'm going to read his explanation. When the female of the scarlet worm species, the tola worm, was ready to give birth to her young, she would attach her body to the trunk of a tree. Whoa. You got it, right? If you don't get it, hold on fixing herself so firmly and permanently that she would never leave again. The eggs deposited beneath her body were thus protected until the larvae were hatched and able to enter their own life cycle. As the mother died, the crimson 
fluid stained her body and the surrounding wood. From the dead bodies of such female scarlet worms, the commercial scarlet dyes of antiquity were extracted. The little baby larva would eat the mother. And what would be left would be a scarlet, red, blood red spot on the tree as these worms go and live their life. Now, what's even crazier is that three days later, that blood red spot would turn white as snow and flake down and fall like snow down the side of the tree. Now, if this isn't the coolest picture of Jesus I have ever seen, and if you're not blown away by this illustration from nature and the Hebrew language, I just don't know what you're thinking. This is amazing. Jesus attached himself to a tree. He let himself get nailed to a tree. And his descendants, you could call them, us, we feed on his life that was given to us there. His blood leaves a stain on that tree. But three days later, it turns white and our sin is washed away forever. We never are punished for our sin again. And it's just glorious when you see that picture from the Hebrew language, from Psalm 22. Jesus became a worm, literally, to save all us worms, right? Verse 9, back in Philippians. Therefore, Since Jesus did this whole worm thing, since Jesus was so amazing, therefore God has highly exalted him and had given him the name which is above every name. What is God's response, the Father's response to the obedience and the humility of Jesus? God lifts him up. Jesus had only one thing that mattered to him, and that was obeying his Father, right? His father gave him command. He said, I do it. He said, obeying God, obeying my father. That's all like, that's what humility leads to. Obedience. And humble obedience is something that God loves to exalt. He loves to fill those empty vessels, those empty gas tanks we saw last week with true glory, with his spirit. He loves to exalt them. No matter how, let me start that over. Lives that matter are humble. And they're so humble that obedience is their only desire. When we suffer for Christ, even if nobody sees, it still glorifies God and pleases God. And he can still fill our life with his glory. This is what's amazing about being a Christian and following the Lord. Is that it... Everything matters. When you're living to please the world, only what they see matters. I mean, you're like, I'm cool, you know, and so you do your hair and you put on fancy clothes and you go and you show up and you're like, I'm cool. And they're like, yeah, you are cool. You must look like that all the time. And they don't see when you wake up and you look like a disaster, a train wreck. They don't see that. And so your life is divided into these segments, the public you and the private you, and it's, it's hidden. That part is hidden. But when you follow Christ, everything God sees and God's involved in every part of it. And he's shining light everywhere, and he's giving you glory, and, and that's why it matters when you go into your closet and you seek the Lord away from people. 
You don't let them see you because God sees you and God rewards you openly. He lifts you up. Jesus honored his father in secret and the father lifted him up in public. And God the Father the Father does this for Jesus. Jesus didn't have to exalt himself and humility doesn't feel the need to talk about itself. But the Father, our Father, loves to talk about us when we're humble. Now look at verse 10. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those in heaven and those of those on earth and those under the earth. That at the that and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And the Father isn't content to just honor Jesus by himself. He is going to require that every being in the entire universe worship him. This is what God is interested in now. He's like, I love Jesus, and you all need to love Jesus too, because he is awesome. You guys don't even know how awesome he is. I do. And Jesus, he was infinitely humble, so his glory is going to be infinite as well when people see him as he truly is. Our hearts need to feed on his humble example. Our minds need to linger at the cross and think about his humiliation. We need to ask ourselves this question, what does the cross matter to me today? What does it matter in this situation I'm in? With this relationship and the struggles here, how does the cross change it? This is how Jesus thought like a worm. He emptied himself of all his selfish ambitions, anything that he wanted to accomplish or have, and he lived in total dependence on his father. He didn't depend on himself and his ideas. He depended on his father. And our response to this beautiful life of Jesus and this submission of Jesus should be what's described here. This should be our response. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Our response when we see Jesus on the cross should be to bow the knee and to confess his lordship. So we can apply this to our life in very practical ways. I'm having an argument with someone. Let me look at the cross. Okay, Jesus is humble and glorified the Father, so I'm going to bow my knee to him, and I'm going to confess his lordship. Lord, what is it that you require me to do in this situation? Shut up and don't fight for my rights. What? I, I, that's not what I want to do. That's not what my flesh desires to do. I'm sorry, I thought you just said I was Lord. Are you going to confess me as Lord and bow the knee to me? Pour your life out as an offering for me? Or are you going to continue living in your selfish, self-absorbed, fleshly, flesh-pleasing life? Obviously, this is not popular to preach on. I thank you all for not throwing things at me. Every human, those are the ones on the earth. Every angel, those are the ones above the earth. And every demon, those are the ones below the earth. Everyone is only right when they recognize and act on what, who Jesus is and what he does. Everyone who doesn't 
respond to Jesus is in rebellion against God and in league with Satan. Just not humbling yourself. That's what that is. Worms are good at one thing. Bowing down. When I picture a worm crawling, even the crawling looks like it, it's just bowing down. Just bow, bow again, bow again. That's what that looks like to me, right? So why is all of this important? If we can say, truly, it doesn't matter what happens to me in my kingdom, I only care about Jesus and his kingdom, then we will be completely safe. We will be completely victorious. Because we are in Christ by faith. So his kingdom is our kingdom. If you'll just let go of your flesh's idea of what you want your kingdom to be, you can just partake in his kingdom. We are his body, united with him. When we get killed or die, we only get to experience more of Jesus without limitations and free from all restrictions. So death is gain. The more we suffer, the more we can rejoice for Christ rejoices over us and in our sufferings. He gives us victory because his kingdom is grown as we suffer. His kingdom benefits when we suffer. So that's how we rejoice. We don't put on a fake smile and say, oh, I love suffering because that's dumb. Nobody likes to suffer. God knows it's suffering. It wouldn't be called suffering. It'd be called party time. But that's not what it is. It is suffering. And, but God says there's a joy that happens because you see his kingdom and not your own. And that's how humility can affect, Jesus' humility can affect the way our brains work. When we see his love and his humility, it affects the way that we live. Now, this text that we just read is a test for your soul. When you hear about Jesus being exalted by the Father, the Father saying, Jesus, I place you at the right hand. of You sit on the throne. All authority and power is given to you, and I glorify you for what you did. On the, it, if your heart rejoices in that, if that tastes sweet to you, that Jesus pleased God and God is rewarding him and blessing him, then your soul is in a good place. Your mind is working properly. If it doesn't really matter to you that God exalted Jesus, it speaks volume of your relationship to him. Let me explain. Last week, I was able to do uh, Jeremy and Jill's wedding, and it was hotter than the blazes of hell. It was hot. Oh my gosh, it was so hot. We're sitting out there, and, and the sun's beating on us, and it's glorious. It was a wonderful wedding. Preach the gospel to like 200 people, so pray for all them to get saved. But before the wedding, Jill got all gussied up, right, in her beautiful dress. They had her come down the stairs, and her dad and her three brothers were at the bottom of the stairs waiting. This was her, like, presentation to them, okay? So as she came down the stairs, her dad lost it. And he's this big farmer, right? He lost it. And he cried. If he's watching right now, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't tears of like, oh, she's so ugly. Of course not. He's so happy. 
and is very emotionally effective in his life because he loves to see his daughter exalted. Because he's been with her. He saw her born. He had a role in that. He saw her fall. He saw her cry. He comforted her. He saw her grow. He saw her learn. He taught her. And through all of this, he developed a relationship with her. And so, when he sees her finally exalted, because a bride is exalted on the day of her wedding, right? That is the highest exaltation. She's exalted. She's the center of attention. Her beauty is so amazing. And he weeps for joy. Why do fathers of the bride weep when their daughter on their wedding day is exalted? Because of relationship. Because they have a connection. They've walked with them. Now, the father exalts Jesus. And the father is so excited about it. And we read this sometimes and we're like, okay, okay, okay. I don't really get it. And that is a sad commentary on where our relationship with Jesus is. Because if we were really close to him, and if we really sought him and engaged with him, we would have this joy at Jesus' exaltation like a father of the bride on the day of her exaltation. We would have this emotional response, this connection. It will be there because that is the proper response of relationship. It's a good test for us. It's a great test for us. When you're connected, the object of your affection and your love, you want them to be exalted. It's not just a, oh, who cares? It's a, yes, I'm so excited for you. I'm so excited for what you're getting right now. I hope you're glorified more. Other people don't care as much. Outsiders aren't as emotionally connected. Photographers at the wedding, you know, they're not weeping at every wedding because they're emotionally disconnected. They're just hired to take pictures. But those who have been forgiven and cleansed by Jesus, they want nothing more than to see him exalted. The highest place a man can live is where he wants nothing of self, but only to glorify God. Then his life flows in and through that man, the life of God. That's what surrender looks like. Jesus is what surrender looks like. Spurgeon quote, Spurgeon quote. Ready? Number three. I don't always do three Spurgeon quotes, but when I do, it's a good sermon. (laughs) But this one just cut me to the heart. He says, oh, I have striven for that. Would to God I might attain unto it. I have now concentrated all my prayers into one, and that one prayer is this, that I may die to self and live wholly to him. That is what thinking like a worm is. Amen? Amen. You guys may have received this little page as you came in. We're going to end our sermon in just a moment. We're... The sermon itself is done, but I wanted to walk through this page with you guys real quick. This side is just notes. This is what you take notes on. I don't need to explain it much. 
This side is great. This is called the Romans Road. And you may have heard of the Romans Road, or you may not have heard of the Romans Road, but we're going to go through it a little bit just to make sure that you understand it. Because with all that we just talked about, you may be like, wow, this is heavy. I am kind of blown away at, at Jesus. And I would like to be saved. I would like to have Jesus be that for me. I want to be connected to him. I want to get saved. This is a great help in understanding what the gospel is. The gospel saves people. The gospel is the entirety of God's message. God saves people. But this is a, helps us understand how he saves people. It's a really good way to think about it. So number one, we think about the problem of sin. And in Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the problem. Everyone is in need of forgiveness. Everyone's a sinner. Now, number two, we have to understand the implications of that. What that means, number two, is the wages of sin. So unfortunately, all of us are sinners, and there's a penalty for that. It says, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And spiritually, that means you die. Not only do we physically die, which is a penalty of sin, but also you go to hell. You have to live an eternal death where every moment you're dying because you're absent of the source of life, God himself. So you're living in this state of constantly being dead and death. Number three, but the love of God. The love of God is the third stop on this road to understanding salvation. And it says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God saw us as sinners. He knew the punishment of sin. And yet he said, I'm going to do something about it. I am going to step in and save you. So while we were still sinners, God demonstrated that he loved us by Jesus dying for us. So Jesus must be, has to be God. Another way you can prove it. Number four. And the free gift of God is of salvation. Number, uh, Romans 6.23. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God says, instead of trying, you guys trying to earn your way to me, because you look at every other religion in the world, is they are trying to earn their way to God. Every single one. Everything is different than Christ-centered Christianity. Only in the Bible does it say, you do nothing to save yourself. Jesus did everything, and he offers it to you as a gift, a gift, grace. That's his gift, is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Your sin can be washed away, the penalty of sin washed away, done. Now, verse five, or number five, verse five, Romans 10, 9, and 13. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So instead of us having to do anything, all we do is believe that Jesus was God and believe that Jesus died on the cross as the substitute for my sin and then believe that God the Father accepted that sacrifice and proved that when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's how the re resurrection is so important. It proves that God accepted that sacrifice because death, the punishment of sin, 
doesn't exist with Jesus anymore. He's risen from the dead. He conquered death. So that is the simp- a very simple way, a very clear way to understanding the gospel. All right. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. Jesus, we have heard many things about you today. And Lord, I pray that they would become real in our hearts. And we're just going to spend a moment right now to seek you, Lord, and to thank you for becoming a worm for us, being the redemption and love that we needed, and also for doing the works that you did, dying on the cross, giving your life, paying the penalty. Lord, we thank you for all these things. You show us how to live with a, a low mind, the lowliness of mind, how to have humility. Lord, you show us the way to everlasting life. Now, if anyone in here has, would like to take that step to say, today is the first day that I, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want to believe that right now I just want you to raise your hand and we want to pray with you and encourage you. This is not like a, we don't want any attention to be on you. You can be shy, that's fine. I just want to make sure that you have the offer and the invitation that today you were offered to receive Jesus and respond to Jesus' call in your life today to be forgiven. Anyone at all, just raise your hand and say, that's me today. Well, Father, I pray for the deep work you're doing in our hearts. And I pray, Jesus, that you would draw all of your sheep to you, that we would hear your voice, that we'd follow you with all our hearts, And Lord, that we would rejoice that you are exalted. You must become greater and we must become less. We love that role. Those of us that truly know you, we love when you are exalted because you are our dear brother and savior. You have bought us and brought us into the family of the most holy God. And we love to see you exalted, Jesus. And we thank you that we can take the lower role. We can humbly take our, our place as your body here on the earth. That we can serve those in the church and we can serve those outside the body to give you glory. Lord, I thank you that we can do things anonymously and quietly and, and Lord, with no thought of selfish ambition. And I pray for our church, Lord, that we would be a picture of selfless living. Lord, that we would never want people to know our names, but only your name, Jesus, that you would be exalted above all our thoughts, all our desires. Lord, even our, our everything about our lives would just show your glory. Lord, create in us pure hearts. Help us to see your great love. In your name we pray, amen. Let's go ahead and stand and worship the Lord.